Today's episode is brought to you by SalesCred Pro, the strategic resource for B2B sales that fortifies your credibility and accelerates the trust building needed for building successful business relationships. Get your free seven-day trial now at salescred.com PRO. Welcome to the Manage Smarter Podcast with hosts C. Lee Smith and Audrey Strong. We're glad you're here for discussions on new ways to manage smarter, hire, develop, and retain talent, improve results, and propel team performance to new heights. This is the Manage Smarter Podcast. We, we really haven't had, I don't think we've had an attorney on the show, have we? If we do, I you know, it's only been one. So it, it, it's high time that we do it again. And yeah, this is one of those things where people love their attorney, but they hate opposing counsel. And <laughs> yeah, but 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 like quite frankly, you know, uh, as a business owner, if 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 you are just starting up or you have a small firm or whatever, uh, there is this tendency then to want to skimp on their, their legal fees and try to get things done as cheaply as possible. That can be really costly in in, in the long run. I, I speak from experience on that, but also it's a matter of you know what I want to learn more about is. You know, this perception of what we how we think, you know, law firms operate based on what we see on TV and everything like that. And what it really takes then to be a successful manager, a successful leader, you know, in a, in a law firm and to help grow it and develop it into its fullest potential. That's really what I want to ho- hope to learn more about today. That's right. So welcome to Manage Smarter, everyone. I'm Audrey Strong, Vice President of Communications here at Sales Fuel. And I'm Celie Smith. I'm the CEO and founder of Sales Fuel and a big fan of LA Law back in the day. Oh, <laughs> you're dating yourself, but I know a little bit. <laughs> guess today right, is... the good wife is more current, I suppose, yeah, right? Yeah, that's <laughs> a good one. That's a good one, too. Louise Scott is a respected attorney and consultant, owner of Bader Scott Injury Lawyers, an eight-figure firm consulting specializing in helping legal professionals optimize and grow their practices. Over his 20 years as a legal professional, he's been recognized by various legal organizations and was a managing partner of a successful law firm with more than, well, you said almost 200 employees. Luis, thank you for coming today. Uh, Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. You know, my dad was a middle manager um, department head within a big pharmaceutical company. And he always said to me, I don't manage 20 people. I manage 20 personalities. And Mm. is that kind of what it's like at, at the law firms? Oh my gosh, I, I'm I'm surprised it's only 20 personalities. I, sometimes it feels <laughs> like everyone has at least one. Everyone has <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's definitely, you know, people are the hardest part of business because uh in at scale, people are very predictable, but as individuals, people are incredibly unpredictable and that makes it uh, very complicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just seems like I have lawyer friends in multiple different firms and it's like they're working like dogs. Um, and they're really working long hours and everything like that. And it's, it, the, the interesting thing is, like, I see basically, you, know, you mentioned the personalities. I see basically three personalities. It's like who they are as people, which is how I know them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, who they are when they're working with you and then who they are if they have to litigate. I mean, it's like I, those are three personalities I can think of right off the top of my head. And they all have them. So it's like, what's it like to manage that? Yeah, I mean, and the thing is that it's, uh, you know, there's two different types of employees in a law firm. You got the lawyers. Uh, and then you have the, the what I would call general staff, which is the non-lawyers. And uh, the way I look at the personalities is who they really are, who they are when they're with their boss, and who they are with the, when they're with their coworkers. And I think those are three different people for the most part. And I think one of one of my uh, aspirations is to know who they really are, not who they are just with their boss. Like that's what I really want to know. But the lawyer personality, and I can say this as a lawyer, 
Uh, it's a very a lot of ego in the room when you have two or three lawyers. Uh, actually, when you have one lawyer, there's a lot of ego in the room. When you have two or three lawyers, the ego really overflows. And uh, part of that is the way that they train you in law school. You know, they tell you you're the the, the brightest of of the of the class. You're the you know you're the smartest and all this stuff. And they really build you up. But yeah, managing the personalities is is very uh, complicated. And and I think the better you get at at, at creating a unified personality in an individual, like knowing who they are in all three areas really helps you. I want to tap into some of your past experience, even before the law firm, where I see you've had experience as a mediator. And a lot of times managers and leaders, we have to play referee. And particularly when we're dealing you know, in, in an area, whether it be legal or sales or anything like that, where you have you know strong egos involved or anything like that. I mean, what kind of tips can you give to a manager to be a better mediator uh, of difficult situations and difficult personalities? If you're a manager and you want to be a mediator, you you need to be really good at not taking sides. And I think that that's one of the hardest parts of being a manager because we all have an affinity towards people that we sometimes don't even recognize. Like we may see two employees and say outwardly that we view everyone as equals, but really we have a great better relationship with one than we do the other. And so th there's a natural inclination for us to show a bias towards one over the other. But if you want to be a really great manager and a really great mediator with people, you have to be able to look at the facts and not the emotions. You have to be able to look at the, at the people as individual people who you don't have a personal relationship with, but rather you're just assessing the facts that, uh, of the situation through their lens and through their perspective, and then making a determination as to how you find common ground. And so I think that's how you use the mediation tactic to really unify two people who are at odds on a particular situation. Before we, you came into the room, Luis, I was, we were talking about this with Lee and I said, I don't like mediation because there's no clear winner or loser. And I want to win. Like I said, what and, are you doing? Audrey, it was you that said that, not me. <laughs> I did say that. <laughs> so, and, and because I'm a linear thinker. So what do you do when you have two employee of, so mediation, I agree. Like it's a nice thing and everybody mm. hopefully feels like they got something out of it. But what do you do when you have two employees that are just diametrically opposed and aren't down with the whole mediator. And they got that jungle fighter personality where there has to be, <laughs> if I win, you have to lose. Yeah. That yeah, sounds like, that, that sounds like the lawyers. I mean, that they're, oh. they're very, you know, they're fighters and, you know, and when they have a per particular perspective on a case, they, they believe that their, that their case is, is the right one. And, you know, it's really hard because uh, mediation requires that two people are, are, have a desire to find right. resolution. And when you have people who don't have a desire to find resolution, you're going to end with two unhappy people. And uh, that's the difficult part about managing people in general is that, you know, going into it, if, if you don't have two people who are going to work in an amicable way, you will not be able to find a resolution. What you will find is a solution where two people are still not happy about the outcome. And I think mm -hmm. one of the things that I've really stressed, and, and, and I was talking to somebody actually recently about this, that if you want to be a great manager and a great leader, you need to learn the psychology of people, the, what mm -hmm. makes them tick, what makes them, how do they think, how do they behave, how do they react in certain situations, and really get good at, at working with them within their paradigm, within their perspective, so that you can help them see that maybe what their, their position is not the position needed for the for the moment, even if they're right, and I think it's very very challenging. I mean, you can you can look in even the the political world right now, right? It's like nobody agrees on anything. It's like, and we're digging into our position, and and if you're not willing to at least see the other side, it's very very difficult to find any kind of a common ground. You know, as a, as a leader, I mean, to be able to do that takes a great 
degree of courage. And I know that that's something you like to talk about is, you know, how, how do leaders develop, you know, the level of courage that they need to be able to stand up to the strong personalities, to be able to mediate a, a tenuous situation and to be able then to, uh, you know, help everybody feel like they've been heard and and not take sides and to uh, go. Uh, I mean, this is something is to go where the evidence leads you, as opposed to you know having your conclusion first and finding this, the evidence to support it. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the tricks is is not having an outcome in mind. And so, if you don't have an outcome in mind, it's very uh, it's a lot easier to like let the evidence guide you. But if you have an outcome in mind, you're going to view the evidence to you know through a particular lens. Recently, I was sitting in, in a jury. I, I didn't get picked, but I got I spent the whole day going through the jury. And one of the questions was, how many of you in here, regardless of what you hear, have already made a determination about this case? And there was like three people that raised their hand. Like, oh, man. You know, they want to go home. That's true. That's true. But you know, what's funny is that one of them actually got picked for oh, the jury. God. Wow. One of the guys who said, I've made up my mind already, got picked. I was wow. shocked. I was shocked. But uh, nevertheless, what, what happens is if you already have an outcome in mind, I mean, it's really hard to manage that. And it's, and it's hard to, mm -hmm. to, to, you know, to create the right uh, circumstances where you find an, a, a true solution if somebody's already kind of dug into what, what they want to see as the outcome. And I think, you know, when, when I talk about the courage to lead as a leader, it is very, very tough to be a leader. A lot of people, they think they're leaders, but they're really managers. And the true indication of a What's person the difference. Oh yeah. The, 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 the real difference is that a manager wants to dictate the outcomes of the individual activities of a person where a leader is focusing on the individual as, as a, as an individual. It's like, how do I build the person? How do I build them in character? How do I build them in skills so that they can then make decisions on their own behalf for the benefit of the company where a manager is in the day-to-day -day, they're working with the person, they're helping them, you know, do the task. And then they're, they're over, they're, you know, holding them accountable to those tasks. So a lot of people say I'm a leader, but really they're just a manager. They're not really leading. They're not, they're not uplifting people or growing them. They're just simply working with them on the day-to-day -day task because leadership is really hard and it's, and it's painful, especially when relationships are involved. And that's the hardest part. I, I, you know, one of my friends used to tell me having almost 200 employees is like having 200 relationships. And every mm -hmm. time you lose one, it's like getting broken up with again, it's painful. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's like when it happens to me, I mean, Audrey will tell you, it's just like, I'm, you know, replaying in my mind, what could I have done differently? Why did they leave? You know, everything. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it doesn't happen very often in this company, but still when it does, it's, yeah. it does, it feels like a breakup. And it's like, and you want to know the reason why, and you want to try to understand it and you want to try to make course corrections and everything like that. So that doesn't happen again. And it just feels crappy when, especially when you lose somebody that you don't want to lose losing somebody that you'd want to lose or whatever is a totally different story. But <laughs> well, I went one, just one quick, put a period on it on the mediation thing, Luis, tell me yeah. what you think of this. I had a manager once describe how you can better get to the being open to mediation, a compromise, uh, two things. Tell me if you like this, yeah. uh, one is, would you rather be right or be happy mm -hmm. is the question yeah. to ask. Yes. And then um, the second thing I'm trying to think, I've just now forgot what the second thing was. What would you rather be right or be happy? And then just, yeah, I, I, the second one escapes me, but well, I I've think heard, the happiness thing and yeah. not being entrenched is really important. Yeah. I mean, I, I've actually heard that said a little bit different. It was like, oh. I'd rather be rich than right. I'd rather be rich than right. So like sometimes, you know, being rich doesn't necessarily mean you, you make more mm -hmm. money. A lot of times it does, but it, I'd rather be rich than right. In, in other words, I'd rather 
make the money. I'd rather have more time. I'd have rather have more peace. I better rich in, in my everyday life. Cause like, there's nothing better than living in harmony with people. Uh, I don't know why people choose to be in constant friction. It's just beyond me, to be honest. Well, yeah, and when I, I'm a long distance cyclist. So when we're out riding the bikes and you know, we're riding on the roads with cars and everything like that, you know, we have a saying, it's very similar. It's like, you, you, you never want to be dead right. Right. Oh, yeah. So right. it's like, you can right. be right, you know, yeah. but, but going up against, you know, a, a, a two ton vehicle or something like that, you're dead. <laughs> so what's the point of being right? And it's like, yeah. it's sort of like, sometimes you just have to sacrifice, you know, that you have to be right. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, no, it's like we have, you know, that's not the end goal is for me to be right. The end goal is something bigger than that. And they have to sacrifice and let that go sometimes unless you're unless it's you're violating your principles. But right. I do remember the second thing. It's uh, stop making everything a zero sum game. Yeah. Just stop doing the math. It's not like a zero sum game. There doesn't have to be because you are not getting what you want doesn't mean that something's been taken from you and given to X department over here. It's That's not it at all. Just stop thinking about that. Yeah, I think think that's great. I I think that I think in in business in general, especially when it comes to competition, and this is something that I recently said in my private Facebook group that I have with my my members, is that even if a million people knew you, there's still 330 million people who don't know who you are. And like there's this, this, this idea that there's really competition in this world. There's not really competition. If you have a great product, you can you can overcome anything that's that's happening uh, in the marketplace. And, and I love telling this example. I, I used to live in a little city um, in West Georgia that had about thirty five thousand residents. And somehow this little city that had restaurants that had businesses managed to have two Chick-fil-A's and both of them have three lanes in oh, their drive. In a, in a city of thirty five thousand, there's two Chick-fil-A's with three, three drive through lanes on each side like there's no competition. If you have a great product, not enough people even know about you yet. Go out there and market and you'll see what, what, what can yeah, happen. I, I want to, I want to find the person that you know, did the planning and the organization, everything like that. How to make the drive-through work at a Chick-fil-A because it's, they do so much more volume and it, it's so much more efficient than, than any other fast food drive-through that I've ever experienced. So oh I want to find that person and have that person like lead my, lead my projects and stuff. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's wild. I I remember reading something that like the average KFC does uh, eight hundred fifty thousand in, in in revenue per year, and Chick Fil A averages four million in revenue. Like, talk wow. about wow. insane! Yeah. Well, speaking it, of that, one of your topics is developing a predictable business. Mm-hmm. So that's why perfect. Don't we transition that's over perfect. to that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, de- yeah. Developing a predictable business starts by understanding how business works, right? And I think that one of the problems that people have is that they they feel like business is complicated, and, and at the at the core, um, it's I, I try to simplify it for people. And I and I ask the question: When you start your business, what's the first thing you do? And everyone says the same thing: I tell people about it. And I go exactly. And so, if you want to grow a bigger business, you need to tell more people about it. So the business funnel starts with what I call creating awareness. And so you want to create a predictable amount of awareness every single month. This month, I'm going to, I'm going to create awareness with a hundred people. Next month, I'm going to create awareness with 120 next month, 140, 160. And you start seeing the compounding effect of creating awareness with more and more people. Now, the better your product is, the more desirable it is, the less people that need to know about it to purchase it. Right. But the, 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 the lower the desirability, such as legal services, because I consult lawyers and so not everybody's a lawyer. So I need to let more people know about my services in order to create the awareness that I need to make the sales that I need. So it starts at the top of the funnel, creating awareness, and then it goes into creating leads. So awareness generates leads 
Leads will generate sales opportunities. Sales will generate conversions. Conversions will generate revenue. People will then produce the service that you're you're promoting. And then ultimately through efi- uh, efficiencies in operations, that creates profit. And so the understanding that business funnel and asking where am I lacking in predictability is where you hit it first. So if you don't have predictable awareness, you start there. If you don't have predictable leads, you start there. If you don't have predictable sales, you start there. And that's how you start developing predictability throughout the, the organization. What about when the unpredictable happens? Let, there's there, there's a pandemic, or there's an economic crash, or there's a hurricane that blows through town, or something like that. So, uh, yeah. where does the adaptability come into play there? So here here's one of the things that that I always tell people is we build for the we build for the uh, ordinary occurrences, and then we pivot in the extraordinary occurrences. Right? The pandemic, the hurricane is an extraordinary occurrence. We pivot in those moments, but we don't we don't spend our time dealing with exceptions. And this is one of one of the reasons when someone asks me the question, well, what happens if this happens in my business? I go, how likely is that going to happen? Oh, very low. Okay. So we're not going to focus on that. We're going to focus on what happens ordinary because I mentioned earlier in the call that at scale, people are predictable as individuals, they're unpredictable. So we're going to focus on what's predictable at scale. And so think about the airline industry. They know how many people are going to fly in the summer. They know how many people are going to fly to the Super Bowl. A couple of years ago, I think it was, uh, there was a, I can't remember that Super Bowl was in LA and the Rams were playing in that Super Bowl. I can't remember. Yeah, I'm a Bengals fan. So you had to bring that up. Okay. So I'm sorry. Oh gosh. A source of okay, so the Bengals they Delta Airlines set up like 12 more flights mm-hmm. to get the people there to LA from one particular. They knew how many people were going to be traveling, they knew how many people needed flights, they know how many hotels are, are required. When we're planning for the World Cup, you know, they they know how many hotels need to be built and how many highways need to be created and how much resources need to be dedicated to that because people at, at scale are predictable. So we build our business based on the predictability of people, which is a big part of, of my book called The King of Growth, which is predictability in business comes from the fact that we know that at scale people are predictable and we use that to our to our advantage um, and, and provide a service that people need at scale. So to answer the question more directly, I don't even worry about the hurricane and I don't worry about the pandemic because it's so uncommon. I'm worried about just what I can control. I'm thinking about how how lawyers grow their practice. And I think you you guys have uh, something else that you've got to overcome. Uh, Sales Fuel did the the state of credibility in America study uh, just this summer, 2023, uh, found that 35, only 35 percent of Americans view lawyers as credible in what they say and do, uh, (laughs) that, that they can actually be trusted. And I would think if I asked that question with, with you know, some of the people that I know that you consult a lot with, which is the personal injury attorneys, I would think that would number would be even lower. So how do you factor that in and overcome that when, when you're trying to grow a practice? I think one of the one of the reasons that that's happened is because we have that that term ambulance chaser, right? Everybody's heard the uh-huh. word yeah. ambulance chaser. It's like it's the big, you know, the joke or whatever. I get into a car accident. I get like 20 different, you know, mailings, you know, in my mailbox within two days. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's, and it's obviously something that, that is a concern of people. But one of the ways that I overcome that is, is I want to be in the continuous state of education. And I tell people the, the improvements right now, we've, we've gone 20 years without a single uh, airline accident. And, 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 you know, thank God, because like th- those are devastating when a plane falls out of the air and someone dies. And one of the reasons that that's happened is because of the amount of lawsuits that have happened over the years, 30 years of lawsuits that have made it mandatory that they do checks that have made it mandatory that the mechanics work a certain way that have made it mandatory that they have contingencies on these planes. 
And so when, when people tell me ambulance chasers, ambulance, and I go, look, you, you have a very limited view and a very limited scope of what lawyers actually do. Let me educate you on the McDonald's case. So people bring this up. You know, it, mm-hmm. it's always surprising when people hear that the McDonald's lady was an 80 year old lady who had third degree burns through her clothes. That's how hot the coffee was. An 80 year old lady with third degree burns through her clothes. It wasn't some 20 year old, you know, uh, girl who was, you know, just being careless. The coffee was way too hot. And so we needed to put we needed to put heat regulators so it didn't happen again. And so uh, lawyers make communities safer. And and I use individualized examples where people have uh, heard things out of context, and I've helped them see the proper perspective. And I think that through education and more lawyers being uh, uh, better at educating people about these kinds of cases really helps our communities because at the end, that's how we make things safer. Do people take advantage as lawyers? Of course, but they do as medical practitioners. You know, I, I uh, and I don't want to get get into the lawyer versus doctor, but the last time I checked, I think there was 500,000 medical malpractices committed every single year. And nobody ever says we don't need doctors. Nobody's ever said that. 500,000 a year medical malpractice, like known medical malpractice. So we, we sometimes we look at the the, the the occurrences that seem outlandish, and then we generalize. And I want to educate people on what, what the facts are about these kind of cases. We've got about a minute left. Um, and, you know, people will armchair quarterback and complain until they actually need a lawyer, in which case they will right. want a fine lawyer to handle their business. <laughs> so, right, exactly. you know, I, but uh, go ahead and give your website, Luis, and uh, anything else you want to share with the audience. Yeah, absolutely. If you if you want to uh, know more about me and find me on social media, LuisScottJR.com. It's L-U-I-S-S-C-O-T-T-J-R.com. And you can find all about me there, including my books. I have one last question for you, and this is about management and leadership. Like, how do you know, or when's it, when's it, what's a good test where to know when it's time to stop trying to solve a problem yourself and, and get a lawyer involved? Oh, man. Um, I think that you get a lawyer involved when the complexity of the matter is beyond basic understanding, which is probably 99% of the time. There you go. The devil yeah. is in the details. <laughs> That's it. Thanks, Luis. I appreciate you coming on the show. This has been very interesting. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend on iTunes, Overcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also get more great information at salesfuel.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.